Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 141, The House of James. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I have a very special interview done by my production assistant, Sadie Levin, of her mother, Anne Pearson. I originally played Anne's message back in episode 23, The Anne Question. At the time, I had not yet come up with the idea of interviewing people for my podcast. So I never interviewed Anne about her message. Before hearing Sadie's interview, which she both conducted and edited, as usual, we will first hear Anne's message. It comes from the fall of 1988 and is about 20 seconds long. Here we go. Oh man, how dare you, you know, get mad at me for not calling you back when you and Jason were supposed to call between 9.30 and now it's 11.14 and um, I'm at James's house, the house of James, and um, we're going to hear from you so we can go out. Give us a call. Bye-bye. Okay. Do you think that message is you? I guess I do now, but I didn't when Paul first sent it to me. Because when I listened to it, it didn't sound like me. Even when you heard it, you said, oh, that doesn't sound like you. The voice sounds different and fast and weird and... It just didn't sound at all like me. So when I first heard it, I didn't think it was me, and that's what I told Paul. Um, I will say, though, that the more I thought about the message, the more I came to think it probably was me, because at some point I said, I'm at James's house, the house of James. And I think that's the kind of thing that I would have thought was a cool thing to say. <laughs> what did you and your friends do for fun? Um... Well, we studied a lot. I think, that, you know, Chicago's reputation for having kind of nerdy kids was pretty true. I remember spending a lot of time at the library. I spent a lot. I remember staying at the library really, really late. And then the university operated this bus system. So you, that you could get a bus from the library and take it back to your apartment. And I remember we would leave the library in time to get back to our apartments at midnight because Domino's Pizza had this call-in contest, and if you called in and you were, like, the fourth caller, you could get a free pizza. So I remember frequently working at the library, like, almost until midnight and getting home just in time for the pizza. Where would you study? Fourth floor smoking section of the Regenstein. That's where, like, to this day, a lot of my friends are, like, fourth floor smoking section Regenstein people. This is probably hard for you to imagine, but we could smoke, well, pretty much anywhere, but certainly in the library, and I... I smoked all throughout college, and I studied on the fourth floor where there was a part where you could smoke, and we would all smoke. They didn't have ashtrays. You would just put your ashes right into the garbage can, which is where the papers, you know, were thrown out. The whole thing was absurd from, certainly from a public health perspective and from a fire safety perspective, and just all around a bad idea, but that's what we did. It's been a long time since I last experienced someone smoking in an indoor space. I was living in California in 1995 when they were the first state to ban indoor smoking. 
New York, where I currently live, banned it in 2003, and Minnesota, where I frequently visit family, implemented a statewide ban in 2007. But when I was growing up, almost every place reeked of smoke. It seems bizarre to me now how one just became accustomed to it. Both my parents smoked while I was a kid, but at my dad's house, the tobacco aroma lasted longer since my stepmother, Judy, continued to smoke after my dad had quit. She smoked Carlton, whose slogan was, Carlton is lowest. A 1982 ad proclaimed, A whole carton of Carlton has less tar than a single pack of Marlboro. I blame that ad for her death at age 65 from emphysema. The history of tobacco companies promoting the healthiness of their cigarettes can be traced back to the 1940s and 50s when research began to show the ill effects of smoking. Doctors and nurses were given free packs of cigarettes at medical meetings with the hope they would encourage patients to choose a particular brand. One ad campaign from the 1950s declared, More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes. In hospitals, candy stripers walked through the halls offering not just snacks and magazines, but also cartons of cigarettes. The University of Chicago hospitals did not prohibit smoking in patient rooms until 1988. The 1964 Surgeon General's report on smoking and health dramatically increased public awareness of cigarettes' deadly consequences. But the tobacco industry challenged the Surgeon General's findings with the help of scholars like K. Alexander Brownlee, a statistics professor at the University of Chicago. Brownlee, paid secretly by tobacco companies, argued that correlation does not mean causation, and that people who are predisposed to cancer are simply more likely to enjoy smoking. In 1964, the year of the Surgeon General's report, an article from the Maroon declared the University of Chicago had banned smoking in classrooms. But in the 1980s, when I was an undergraduate, this ban was still unenforced, and I had several professors who smoked while teaching. I do remember one professor, William Wimsatt, kindly asking permission of his class in the philosophy of social sciences before he began chain-smoking his filterless pell-mells, dousing the butts in his coffee cup. Another smoker I had as a professor was Charles Gray, who taught ancient and medieval Western civilization. Gray was a lovely man who never smoked in class. But when he invited us to his house for refreshments one evening, I was surprised to find loose cigarettes arranged in glasses for us to enjoy. 
along with the punch and hors d'oeuvres. Gray happened to be married to university president Hannah Holborn Gray, which meant we were being encouraged to light up in the president's house. Complaints about smoking and other disruptive behavior in the Regenstein Library led to a 1975 committee report calling for better enforcement of rules regarding eating, talking, and smoking in study areas. One solution was more signage reminding visitors smoking was prohibited in the stacks and stairways. In 1979, the student government opened Ex Libris, a coffee shop in the lower level of the library, which encouraged people to eat, smoke, and socialize outside of the study areas. During the 1990s, a growing number of studies revealed the dangers of secondhand smoke. The publicity from these studies prompted more institutions to ban indoor smoking completely. The University of Chicago finally prohibited smoking in all shared areas of buildings, including the Regenstein Library, in 1993. If you want to puff this podcast, please contact me through my website, pfoch. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to Sadie for producing the interview and to Anne for her participation. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.